it's appropriate to talk about humility in the run-up to Rosh Hashanah because I found a lot of sources that seem to kind of link humility with the antithetical idea to Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the holiday where it's the anniversary of mankind, right? Man was created on Rosh Hashanah. But as a result of that, it's the anniversary of man's relationship with God. And the relationship that we have with God is that we're the creation and God's the creator. And if you look at the prayers and the themes of Rosh Hashanah, you'll see that it's all about highlighting this particular point. That on this day, on Rosh Hashanah, God became king, because now there's a subject. If there's no subject, there can be no king. We became the subject because we were created, and we accept upon ourselves every year the recreation of God's dominion, of God's kingdom. That's why it's also the holiday of judgment. Judgment because every year the administration is renewed because this is the beginning, this is the first day, this was the inauguration and the coronation of God. And therefore every year we revisit that anew. And as a result, we're trying to make sure that before Rosh Hashanah and during Rosh Hashanah as well, that we are presenting ourselves to ourselves personally with our behavior, but of course to God, as recognition of who we are and what our role is. And when someone has the quality of being haughty or being arrogant, but not being humble, essentially we could say that it's a little bit of a mutiny and rebellion against God. In fact, the Talmud tells us a few statements about that. For one here, someone who is arrogant or haughty, the Almighty says, me and him can't be in the same world together. God is a creator. If someone is a creator, then it makes sense for them to have pride because they did something. If someone is a creation, everything that they really have is a result of the initial cause, which is the creator. So when someone does not have the quality of humility, they're essentially trying to unseat God from his heavenly throne to take God's crown to place it on their own head. Of course, we don't, we don't think about that, but if you actually break it down to its most basic elements, you'll see that when someone has pride, it's essentially a rejection or repudiation of God. Continues the Talmud, someone who has pride and arrogance, it's appropriate to uproot them like an idolatry tree. We read in the Parsha recently that the Jews were instructed when they get into Israel, they are going to find a country that is swamped with idolatry, and they're supposed to break down the altars of the idolatry and uproot the trees of idolatry. Says the Talmud, a, a person who has the quality of pride, it's appropriate to uproot them like an Asherah tree, like a tree of idolatry. Why? You know, humans were compared to trees, um, but if someone has the quality of pride, they're excluding God, they're creating an alternative to God, they're, God's not the creator, because if he was, there wouldn't be any room for pride, and therefore it's appropriate, so to speak, to do that. And lastly, we're told quite plainly that to have the quality of pride and arrogance and haughtiness, that is akin to idolatry. So typically we think of this idea as being sort of an interpersonal thing, where people are a little bit aloof, and they look down at other people, and, you know, they're special, they're better, and, you know, there's no room for anyone else, so to speak, in their world. But initially we see that not only is this a malady with regards to someone's relationship with other people, essentially, really, it starts with someone's rejection of God himself. Now, I think it's a good time to try to put this into focus, especially when we're, you know, the whole holiday season of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is about developing, sustaining, nurturing and nourishing, and of course, deepening our relationship with God. You know, this Rosh Hashanah is a day where it's 
it's man and God, essentially one to one, and we're negotiating. We're 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 working things out. We're establishing what's true and what's not, and what's passing and what's real. The Mishnah tells us that on Rosh Hashanah we're all judged individually. Of course, there's this idea of mass judgment. We're judged collectively as a people. We're judged as a country, as a population, and as a world. But there is this idea that it's just man on his own. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame your kids. You certainly can't blame your spouses. It's just you. You are a single, solitary, lone figure. And the Almighty says, okay, what have you done this year? What have you done to promote the idea of God in the world? What have you done to bring kindness and goodness in the world? Have you challenged yourself? Have you overcome Yetzirah? And, of course, you know, the hope is, is that we get ready and we, we stand up to the test. But I think as we get into this mindset of becoming real with God, and trying to make our relationship and our reverence and our respect and our relationship with God, making that real and substantial in our lives, this is really a major obstacle. And the reason why it's so challenging is because from the beginning of our lives, from day one, we are infused with a Yetzirah, an evil inclination, that is called an alternative to God, and it causes us to have pride. I mean, we have a reality distortion field. There's the reality, and that is that we're a creation, and a creation really, it makes no sense for creation to have any pride. That's fact. But the fact gets distorted. The Yetzirah comes, and its lenses, its perspective that it, that it places upon us changes reality. In, in reality, we don't, in our reality, so to speak, in our distorted reality that the Yetzirah gives us, we don't see God anywhere. We can live our whole lives. I never acknowledge Him, never thank Him for all the things that go right. Ironically, when things go bad, suddenly we reconnect with God. It's just amazing. But we can live our lives and everything's fine, everything's wonderful. And we forget about God. And why? Because that's the, what the Yetzirah does. It's a reality distortion field. Suddenly, God is not, not apparent. And we're trying to combat that. That's what, that's the Jewish mission, to try to combat that distortion, to bring clarity to the world. Every blessing. What's a blessing? A blessing is acknowledging that the glass of water that I have, uh, and the food that I'm about to enjoy, and the, the mitzvah that I'm about to partake in, all that is a product of the invisible God, it's invisible only because of us, but it's its real. And we're supposed to have this touch point with that idea. But it's, you know, we're working against our innate Yetzirah, and therefore there's room over the course of our lives for the idea of pride to infiltrate, and now we have to unseat that. So I, I think that's that's really interesting to think about it, as, you know, this in this manner. When you look at all the all the literature, and there's a lot of literature that talks about about this idea of humility on one hand and haughtiness on the part on the other hand. And what's what's interesting is that the angle that we see predominantly is the between man and God angle, whereas we're used to thinking of this much more between man and and, and his, his or her fellow. So it's interesting that we could really trace its roots all the way back to its basic components, and that is where man has a distorted view of the world. The Talmud also says is that someone who is prideful, that person will not be resuscitated with the dead. One of the core beliefs of the Jewish faith one of the 13 principles of faith, is that our death doesn't eradicate any form of life within us. We're still, our soul is still vibrant. And because the soul is really who, what makes us alive, you know, if you were to take our body and break it down to its basic components, it's, it's not a very complicated thing. Someone once said that you actually could break down the human body 
into um, components that you can find at Walgreens for three dollars. But that's not what a human is, right? A human is something that's alive, something that has intelligence, something that could create and could be creative, and is, you know, has to grapple with challenges. But that's a part of our soul being a part of the equation as well. And you take the soul out, and suddenly you have a body that's totally useless. It's totally useless, and it starts to rot. It starts to decompose. It starts to decay right away. So we look at the body as being just essentially a, a vessel that holds the holds the soul. It in itself, it's just a means to hold the soul. So the soul removes the body, and instantly the body starts decomposing. Right away, you know, you almost you don't discard it. You have to treat it with respect. Because why? Because it once held a soul. That's why we treat the body with with a lot of respect and reverence. But the idea is the soul is still alive. It's very hard to kill a soul. You can't really do that. Maybe there are ways to do that. But generally speaking, you can't do that. The soul is still vibrant. All it needs is to compile back those ingredients and infuse a soul again in it, and you're alive. That's a critical core idea of Judaism. So the Gemara says, if someone is haughty, someone is prideful, then they do not, they, their dust isn't awakened, which is a way of saying they don't come back to life with, res, with the resurrection of the dead. Now, whatever the mechanics is, that's a very bad place to end up. But the question is why? Like, what's the connection between lack of humility, between pride and arrogance, and on the other hand, losing something so critical and crucial like a portion in the world to come? And I think the answer is like this. If someone is prideful, someone is arrogant, if someone says, my actions and my superiority of others is worthy of me lording over them, of me feeling superior, essentially what it's, what the guy is saying, guy or girl saying, is that this world, the world that we're in today, is a world where we should be keeping score. This is an, this world is an end unto its own. It's an end unto its own, and therefore, the status, so to speak, here, is something that's worthy of comparing and contrasting. Competition. What's the idea of competition? Competition is only with the bottom line, right? You can't compete with a process. You can compete with results. Only results make sense to compare with the competition. This world, we say, is, is a preparation. It's a world of, of action to create a world of consumption. That's the model. This world is working. We're trying to do mitzvahs. We're trying to grapple and, and contend with our Yetzirah. We're trying to build and create as much goodness as we can. And Allah that's a world where we say, okay, now let's settle scores and let's have the reward and punishment. This is where we Get the paycheck, so to speak. We cash in the paycheck. If someone says, I want to have competition here, what they're saying is that this world is the end unto its own. This world is not a means. If it's a means, there's no room for pride. If it's only a way to get towards something else, then there's no, there's no room to say, well, okay, there should be superiority or inferiority. It's just about, let's try to achieve X, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever that destination is, then it's appropriate to say, okay, let's look at the results. But someone looks at results here, they're, what they're essentially demonstrating is, there is no other world. If someone says there is no other world, okay, that, that's the reality they're creating, there is no other world, okay, you asked for it, you got it. So when it comes time to create that other world, the, the, wor- the, mindset that someone has while living is the mindset that they have when that other world comes into fruition. So if someone has a mindset that there is no other world, what's going to be? We come to the other world. Okay. Which mindset do these people have? This people says, ah, there is no other world? Okay. That's what he lived and that's, that's indeed what he created for himself. But the theme is that over here we're creating our spiritual world. The Talmud makes this very clear by saying every mitzvah creates an angel. So what does that even mean? But the point is, is that 
We look at it as if we're creating something tangible with our actions, something spiritually real with our actions. The verse, the Torah goes as far as to say that in Olam Haba, we need to eat. But there we can't eat food, we can't drink water. We have to eat spiritual foods and spiritual water. Well, what spiritual food and spiritual water? Study of Torah, doing mitzvahs. We're creating the meal, so to speak, that we're going to sustain ourselves in Olam Haba. So here is the time for preparation because when the, time to, when the time comes to consume, it's too late to prepare. So if you want to eat, you got to prepare beforehand. If you don't bring your lunch to work, you're not going to have your lunch at work. Right? Imagine there is no food at work. Whatever you prepare beforehand, that's what you have to consume then. Whatever we prepare here in our life of preparation here, that's what we consume in Olam Abba. So if someone says, I'm not preparing, why should I prepare? I'm only eating food now. This is the time to eat. I don't need to eat later on. I don't need to prepare for that. Okay, you're going to come to that world and you have nothing in your satchel. Your lunchbox is empty. Obviously, it's deeper than that. It's your, your, your perspective, your mindset is not being formed for that world. Okay, well, that's, that's what you deposit when you die. You, you deposit what you lived by, what your principles, what your values were. If your values weren't in line with this grand picture of this world being merely a corridor to Olam Abba. Okay, if it's not a corridor, if this is the end point, okay, well, that's what you live by. And indeed, that's what you got. This is this, you know, this world is your end. And if that's world, yeah, it's very sad, but that's what, you know, that's what, what results. But with regards to pride, pride is an activity that only makes sense if this world is the end. If this world's not the end, if it's just a process to achieve some other end, how could there be competition? How could we be measuring results? There is no results. It's all work. It's all preparation. It's crazy. In, in, the, in the throes of preparation to try to say, you know, oh, I'm better than them or they're better than me or, or, or I'm more superior because X, Y, or Z. It doesn't make any sense. This is, this is not a world where, where we're comparing. Not only that, the commentators say that this notion of pride and arrogance and haughtiness is the root of most sins. We reverse engineer every misdeed. We can actually bring it back to its core, to the notion of arrogance and pride and haughtiness. Now, I think in light of what we established prior, that arrogance and pride is an alternative for God, well, if you don't have God in your world, if God's not part of your worldview, if you ignore God entirely, well, of course, you're not going to, you behave in line with what you believe. And if you behave thusly, of course all the sins in the world are going to be your lot. Of course. Means that now it makes a little bit more sense. This is really pervasive. If someone doesn't have God in their world, how are they not going to sin? A sin, by definition, is an act against God. That's what it is. Well, if God's not all a player, well, because they have their pride and arrogance, well, then, of course, they're going to behave in a way that's commensurate to that. Additionally, if someone is not thinking big picture, not thinking that their actions today really matter because they're trying to project that to Olam Abba, and this world is merely a corridor, if they're living for this world alone, well, that's by definition what a sin is. A sin is uh, when someone passes on long-term perspective in favor of short-term perspective. A sin is an act which prioritizes this world and deprioritizes Olam Abba. A sin is an act that prioritizes body and deprioritizes soul. It's all the same thing. To do a mitzvah is to say, I'm doing something specifically because I'm living for this other world, for my soul, for this other invisible reality. I'm living for God. I'm living for my soul. I'm living to fight my Yetzirah. I'm living for Lama Ba. That's what a mitzvah is. 
So by definition, if someone is arrogant, it's an entirely reframed picture where it's only this world, it's only my body, and there's no God, and this is what I've got. Well, okay. If that's your perspective, it's unsurprising that that's your behavior as well. There is a little bit of a fine line between pride, which is bad, and self-esteem, or self-value, which is very, very good and essential. And for kids, it's a little bit hard for them to toe that line. And that's why, in fact, the commentators all say that this is, this is, this is a big boy's job. This is, this is work for adults. Kids, if you try to work on this as a kid, you try to, you know, it's very, very hard because it's going to tamper with someone's development. This meter, this characteristic of trying to achieve humility, can have a very bad and injurious backlash and can cause someone to feel like their life doesn't matter. When in fact, it's the opposite. The idea of humility is to make your life matter even more because everything that you do is exponentially amplified because there's a bigger world and God exists. If God exists, every action matters so much more. But it could have the reverse effect if it's done a little bit too early where it's going to cause someone to say, oh, you know, I'm nothing, and my life matters nothing, and depression and, and self-esteem problems can result. Another interesting misconception about humility is that it's, humility is about having an untrue perspective. In fact, I would say it's the exact opposite. Humility is, is clarity. If someone doesn't have humility, by definition, they have a distorted worldview. They ignore God in their world. So, ironically, we think of someone not knowing their abilities as being humble. No. If someone doesn't know their, their abilities, they're not living in a clear world. Did Moshe, who was, we'll get to him in a little bit, but, but did Moshe, who's the most humble of all men, did he not know that he was a leader of the people and he brought us to Torah? Of course he did. And in fact, there's many sources that talk about that. Moshe was the most humble person in the world, yet... Moshe was the greatest person in the world, the greatest prophet in the world. And by the way, he knew that. He wasn't stupid. There's a Mishnah in the end of the book of Sota that says that when Rebbe died, Rebbe, every time it says Rebbe, means rabbi in Hebrew. But Rebbe is, when it says Rebbe without rabbi this, or rabbi that, rabbi Akiva, rabbi Shimon, right? We, we, it just says Rebbe, rabbi. It's referring to Rabbi Judah the Prince, who was... Uh, the lead of Jewish people at the end of the second century. The reason why he's just called by the honorific of Rebbe, or Rabbi, is because his impact and influence on the Jewish people was so complete that the Jewish people nominated him as being the rabbi of all the Jewish people, not limited. But sometimes he's called Rabbi Yehuda as well, Rabbi Judah. But either way, the Talmud says that when he died... There's no more people of humility. He was a person of such humility that when he died, no one could kind of achieve that. That's what the Mishnah says. One of the rabbis in the Talmud says, "Ah, is that true? But I'm still around. That's what the Gemara says. Now, this sounds hilarious to us. It sounds really funny to us. Because we would think that that that, that's, that's an oxymoron, right? It's oxymoronic to say that I'm humble. But apparently it's not. Humility is someone's worldview, someone's perspective. If someone knows that they are incredibly talented, incredibly gifted, does that mean they're not humble? No. If they link that to God as being the source, God created me with with intelligence. And God created me with a mission to achieve because of my intelligence. If I say, I have the mind of ten men, and therefore I have the responsibility of ten men, that's humility. There could be delusion, right? Someone could say, uh, I, I'm, I'm so brilliant when they're indeed not so brilliant. That's delusion. That's not, that's not one or the other. But if someone has an accurate perception of their abilities and their skills and their achievements, but they don't recruit that towards their brilliance because they didn't do anything to get that. They didn't make any one of their neurons in their brain fire. It's all the Almighty. And they, 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 link it back to God as the source, and they don't take that as a matter of pride and they should be any better than other people here because this is only a tool in the world where we're trying to work 
in the world of preparation. And therefore they say, oh, I have great tools, but that means I have great responsibility and great, you know, a bar of achievement that I have to, I have to reach. Well, that's humility. There's no pride there. Moshe knew he was the greatest man who ever lived. He was. He knew it. He knew he was the greatest leader the Jewish people had. Well, but he didn't feel superior to anyone because he felt that that was just from God and God gave me what I, what, what, what I, what I got. So I should do what, um, what's required of me. And that's humility. When someone has great ability and great achievements, either way, they can create a model where they don't, they don't have, they don't have arrogance. I'll explain what I mean. If someone has more achievements than me, well, should I be, should I be prideful? Of course not. I have less achievements and less ability than someone else. Well, what if I have more achievements and more abilities than someone else? Should I be prideful then? Also not. Why? Because if they sin, their misdeeds, well, they don't have so much ability. Therefore, when I sin, I have so much more ability, and therefore, I'm so much worse off than them. So I shouldn't be prideful. The mission tells us, if someone studied a lot of Torah, should they be prideful? No. That's why you were created. Just like we did say, if someone digests, should they be prideful? Should people get T-shirts, I can di- digest. No, that's the way the Almighty created them, and that's the purpose that the Almighty created them for. If you understand where your abilities and your successes come from, and you understand also what your responsibility in life is, there does, it, it's illogical. It's illogical to have any pride. It doesn't make any sense. Does that mean that you don't realize your abilities? What? No, why should you not realize your abilities? In common society, the idea of humility is to think that your abilities aren't what they are. That's not, that's not, that's not humility. That's delusion. If it's not true, humility is to recognize that's where it comes from and what it's for. And if you, if you recognize those two, there's no, you know, there's no reason to be prideful or arrogant or haughty. And that's humility. Now, there's a, a very interesting Mishnah. The Mishnah tells us that we should be exceedingly humble. Me'od, me'od havish falruch. This is the Mishnah in chapters of the Fathers 4, 4. And why? Why should we be exceedingly humble? This is a, a little bit unsettling, but it's fact. Shetikvash, enosh rima. Because the hope and the destiny of man is maggots. This is fact, as disturbing as it is. We're all going to die. We're all going to be turned to the ground. That's fact. As such, why does it make sense to be prideful in this world when it's just an exercise? This world is all just... It's just a question of how long we, we're going to be here and what we're going to do while we're here, but we're all going to end up in the ground. And, and the idea is, like, like we said prior... To be prideful here is illogical. How can you be prideful when the, the future, the legacy, the, what's your destiny? What's the best case scenario? Maggots. That's the best case scenario. Man has to realize what, where he comes from and where he's going to end up. And that teaches us what life in the interim is. We came from nothing. We're going back to nothing. We came, we got our gifts from God and we're going back to face God when we're done here. Therefore, life here in the interim, it's all about work. And thus, to me to be prideful when I know that, I don't know when, but in the future there's maggots for all of us. When we know that, it doesn't make sense, it's illogical to be prideful. If someone is saying, I'm prideful, what they're almost intimating, or at least, you know, they're insinuating that they're not heading back to maggots. So it's illogical. It's illogical to say that someone's prideful. It's it's not, pride is not logical. Because pride ignores the fact that what's their destiny? A destiny's maggots. Of course, it's a little bit unsettling, but it's true. The Ramam tells us that with every midah, with every characteristic, we have to try to find a middle ground. The middle ground is always the best. The one exception is this thing. Arrogance. Arrogance is never okay. It's never appropriate. 
because it's ignoring everything, like God and what life matters, you know, what, what life really is all about. All that is ignored by someone who has pride. Therefore, we have to try to go to the nth degree, to the opposite extreme. I want to talk about Moses a little bit, just to see the flip side. So humility. Where does humility bring us to? And how can we look at a cohesive worldview with humility at the center and everything that uh, emanates from it? Torah tells us that Moshe was the most humble man in the world. So we already established doesn't mean that he didn't know his ability. Of course not. That's not the lesson. Not only that, Moshe was the greatest prophet that ever lived. It's interesting that the, the two errors that we're told that Moshe was the greatest at is humility on one hand and prophecy on the other hand. It seems unlikely that that's just a coincidence. They're probably related. So what's the connection between humility and, and prophecy? How are they related? So the Talmud, I found the Talmud. I was looking for it on Shabbos. I couldn't find it. I knew where it was. I knew, what, I knew which book it was in. And I was flipping back and forth. I couldn't find it. And then after Shabbos, I Googled it, and I found it in a second. <laughs> yes, it happens every week. I'm like, I opened the book. I know it's somewhere between 30 and 40 in the book of the dorm. I know. But I thought it was on the, on the flip side, on the B side. And every B side, and I knew, I knew what the page looked like also. I, I, I remember the page layout. But I don't remember, I can't find it. Back and forth, couldn't find it. The Gemara says it was on 38, but it was on A. So the, the way the Gemaras looked like, you have the, this is backwards, right? But this is the A side, and the flip the side, that's the B side. I was pretty sure it was halfway in the B side. So I checked all the B sides, and all the pages didn't look like they were, they were the right size. I was pretty sure it was one of those, one of those Gemara pages where it's narrow on top, and it gets fat halfway. But the Gemara says, the Almighty only engages in, to prophets who are, who have four qualities. They're mighty, they're strong physically, they're wealthy, they're wise, and they're humble. Sounds like a very eclectic mix of of characteristics, right? They're physically gifted, they have physical prowess, they're wealthy, they're wise, they're intelligent, and they're humble. Seems very bizarre. Like, well, what do those things have to do with yeah, what's going on in here, right? What, you know, and the Gemara says, well, how did, Mo- how did Moses become wealthy? And the Gemara says the whole story of how Moses became wealthy. Fine. But what does this mean? So the commentators say, like, the our surprise and incredulity in the Gemara was shared by the commentators. What does it mean? Like, someone was wealthy? The Gemara says, no, there's really only one characteristic, and that's humility. But if someone is feeble, and they're poor, and they're not so intelligent well, then they have no reason to be prideful. In every area of life, physically, intellectually, materially, if they're not successful in any one of those, it's no shock that they're humble. But if someone is enormously wealthy, physically gifted, and has uh, uh, material, physical, and intellectual, all the reasons in the world to be prideful are there, and yet they're still humble... That means that their humility is really great, and therefore they achieve the level of prophecy. But what it's really essentially saying is that there's really only one thing, humility. And I think if we bring it back to the building blocks of humility, we'll, we'll realize that what is prophecy and what is humility? Humility is just clarity. It's just having the facts straight. Problem is, we have a Yetzirah. Yetzirah is a very powerful force within us that distorts reality. It distorts the facts. The, the Gemara says that the Yetzirah is called a foreign god within us. Why is it a foreign god? Because it replaces, it supplants God. God's not a player. We have, we have an alternative. Someone who has humility is someone who has clarity, just clarity in the facts of, of life. By doing, well, how do you have that? You have to get rid of the Yetzirah. You have to get rid of the foreign god. Well, you get rid of, get rid of the foreign god. Who is there in, 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 instead of the foreign god, instead of the Yetzirah? It's God. Okay, God's right there. You can talk to God, no problem. So humility is the way to get prophecy because humility is just restoring the human's normal status. In fact, the Talmud tells us that a child in utero, before they have a Yetzirah, is capable of prophecy. Right? The Gemara recounts Prophecy that every 
fetus in utero has every single one. Why? How did they, what, did they, what, did they, what did they do to achieve prophecy? The answer is really the opposite. Humans, in our natural state, our soul, if you were to isolate our soul, is very capable of prophecy. The problem is that our soul is not isolated. We have a Yetzirah thrown in the mix. Yetzirah thrown in the mix. God's ignored. This is the reality of the social field. This world is the only thing that matters. Our soul is the, we're ignorant of our soul. We're ignorant of God. We have, we have an alternative. We have the Yetzirah. You get rid of the Yetzirah. You restore clarity as it was before. Right away, you have prophecy. Thus, Moshe being the most humble and Moshe being the greatest prophet, those are directly linked. Because they're one and the same. Both of them are reflections of Moshe's removal of the foreign god within him. And by dint of that, what do you have in its stead? You have humility, clarity, prophecy. All those things are going to fill the vacuum right away. And, and by the way, there's multiple levels of this. Every degree that we remove the Yetzirah, well, that is replaced by God. Ironically, all you need to do is remove the inhibitor to God, and by dint of that, you have God in, 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 in the place of the void. We're much more comfortable in our natural state where God is present and our soul is unearthed and is allowed to reign in our world. And by the way, so this is interesting. Moshe has highlights in these two areas. Now, what about Moshe's leadership? Moshe is also the leader, the greatest leader the people have ever had. What are the qualities of Moshe's leadership? What's the characteristic of leadership? And how does it relate to humility? So it's, Moshe wasn't just someone who lived man and God. You know, he was someone who was involved with the people. So humility on one hand, prophecy on the other hand, that's kind of Moshe personally. What about Moshe as a leader of the collective, as the leader of the nation? Moshe was involved with every individual. And Moshe was the most humble person and the greatest leader as well. So here we're going to open up another world where humility, till now we've been speaking about humility as man and God, now humility seems to bleed into, to extend into man and one's fellow. Because Moshe was the greatest leader the people ever had. And what I found was that when Moshe is looking for a successor, what does he ask for? This is from Numbers chapter 27, verse 15. Moshe speaks to God saying, May Hashem, God of all living souls, appoint a man over the community. The very interesting and unique name for God, God of all living souls. Moshe is asking God for a successor, a leader to fill the void after Moshe has passed. How does he label God when he's asking for a successor? He says, God of all living things. Says Rashi, why is Moshe calling God, specifically when Moshe is asking for a successor, why is he calling God the God of all living things? So Rashi says, why is this written? Moshe said before God, the personality of each individual, God's the, the God of all living souls. Everyone's different. And God knows all of them, right? God's the God of all living souls. All that's revealed before you, and they do not resemble each other. Appoint for them a leader who will be able to bear each individual according to his personality. The leader is not someone who's trying to change the nature of every person, rather to channel every person in their own individual way to their own greatness. But that means to be able to bear the load of a nation of 600,000 different people. And that's painful. And what I found very interesting is that Rashi, uh, elsewhere, when Rashi talks, when Rashi describes Moshe's quality, when the verse says, Vahish Moshe, Anamikol Adam, and Moshe, the man Moshe, was the great, was the most humble person, what's the word that Rashi uses? He uses the same word, uh, sova, which means to have patience or to bear the pain. And here it says, the leader that Moshe is looking to replace him is someone who's going to bear the pain of each individual. And I think what this is telling us is that humility extends to being able to relate to all other people as individuals, as being different. 
It's almost as if when we start off our life, you know, we're a unique creation, all of us are, but therefore, there's some people that are different than us, and therefore it's hard for us to relate to them. What happens when you get married? It's hard for everyone, right? You, you know, because you're, you're forced to relate to someone that is very different than you. And as no, much, no matter how much you try to find someone that has common interests and common goals and common values, they're different. And that's a challenge. But what does that do to a person? It changes their makeup, their identity. It forces them to absorb other people with, uh, with other characteristics into their own little world. It forces them to break out of this little cocoon of selfishness that they're used to and to now incorporate other people under the umbrella of their world. What is a leader? The Torah has a name for the leaders. The, le- the name for the, the leaders in Torah is Adam Gadol in Hebrew or Gavarabba in Aramaic, which means large person. It doesn't mean great person. It means large person. The idea is that when someone gets married, which is a first step to greatness, they have to take their identity, which is just them, they have to break it to expand to include someone else within the, their own identity. Someone has a child. What is a, what is a child? Child is an extension of the parent. Child feels pain. Parent feels pain as well. What do you mean? There's someone, there's someone else. Why is someone's child's pain causing pain to the parent? The answer is because a child is an extension of the parent. The parent has now expanded. They include within their world not only themselves, their spouses, hopefully, and their children, most certainly. They're now a larger person because they're a greater person, and they're a greater person because they're a larger person. Moshe. Moshe is the greatest leader the people have had. Why is he the greatest leader? Because he was the largest leader. He incorporated the entire Jewish people and maybe maybe even the entire world within his own identity. If you look at Moshe, every story about Moshe, from the first one where Moshe feels the pain of his brethren to the last thing we tell about Moshe where Moshe was able to forfeit his own legacy in favor of the people by breaking the tablets, everything we're told about Moshe is all about Moshe being selfless. Moshe is selfless because Moshe encompasses everyone. Moshe expands himself to include everyone beyond himself, not just the people in his immediate family and his immediate community, but the entirety of the Jewish nation and maybe even the entirety of the world. Therefore, when Moshe, when we're told about feeling the pain of each individual, what does that mean? It means to expand yourself to encompass everyone, to incorporate within you the pain of everyone. When someone else suffers, it's someone else suffering. It's bad, you know. Thoughts and prayers, right? Everyone will very quickly say thoughts and prayers. Yeah, it's very easy to say thoughts and prayers. But to really feel the pain of someone else, you have to work on yourself because you don't feel any pain. Because you're small. You don't include them. If you're big, if you're great, if you're large, automatically you feel the pain. Moshe was the greatest and the largest leader the people have ever had. And says Moshe to God, Give me a successor that has the same quality. Says Rashi, what does it mean to be humble? It means to include, to, to have, feel the pain of other people. How do these things possibly relate? What's the connection between humility and greatness and leadership to include the pain of other people? So I want to just connect these points here. We're told in the Talmud, that Moshe was shakal k'neged shishim ribu. Moshe was equal to 600,000. If you look at 600,000 on one, the whole nation, you look at Moshe on the other, they're equal. I think what this means is, is that Moshe expanded himself, his identity. Of course, Moshe, the individual Moshe is just Moshe, right? That's just Moshe. Moshe's identity included all 600,000 Jews. All that was part of who he was. Therefore, of course, he felt a lot of pain. But how does this relate to humility? So I want to say an idea here. Why is someone prideful? Pride is someone I feel superior over someone else. Why? Because I'm me, and there's something that's not me. 
Therefore, it makes sense to have pride. Pride, your right hand is not pride, prideful over your left hand. No one ever says, my kids never say, that, oh, when you throw with your left hand, you, look like, you throw like a girl. Your right hand doesn't say it to your left hand. Why not? It doesn't make sense for someone to say, I'm prideful, my one half is prideful over my other half. That's illogical. So if someone, part of them, is, is gifted, and part of them is a little bit less gifted, they don't have internal pride. It doesn't make any sense. You can only have pride if you're prideful over someone who's beyond you. Well, Moshe had no one beyond him. Because it was all incorporated within him. If the entirety of the Jewish people are part of Moshe, of course he cannot have any pride because it's all part of him. It's, it, everyone is included within me. How can I have pride one over the other? It's just different parts of, of me. And it's illogical to have different parts of me to be included, uh, to, to, have, to have pride over each other. Thus, thus we could say that humility really connects to the idea of man and one's fellow. What's love of, you know, what are we told? To love your fellow as yourself. What does that mean? Love your fellow as yourself. The deepest idea here of loving your fellow as yourself is to say, as yourself, just like you are part of yourself, they should be part of yourself as well. How do you love someone else? The answer is no, you don't have to love someone else, you love yourself, right? All you have to do is to include them within yourself, and automatically you'll love them. The reason why I love me and I don't love other people is because they're other people, they're not me. But if they were me, if they were part of my expanded identity, I love them automatically. Love your fellow as yourself, expand yourself to include others beyond yourself, become great like Moshe, become larger, and automatically you love them. You don't need to be taught to love yourself, you already love yourself. All you need to be taught is to expand yourself to include others beyond yourself, and automatically you love them. The Talmud tells us that taking revenge is illogical. Why? Says the Talmud, you have a man with a sickle, the man's cutting the, harvesting the wheat. Sickle's a very sharp knife, and they actually use it very fast. So he's, he grabs the bushel and cuts the sickle, and he's doing that, right? And by mistake, his hand gets caught up. Left hand gets caught up. Or right hand for lefties. His less dominant hand gets caught up in the bushel, and by mistake, he cuts off his hand. So there's a severed hand on the floor. So what does the severed hand do? It's very, very disappointed. The severed hand picks up the sickle and cuts off the other hand in, in revenge. That's obviously, it's an example, because once the hand severed, hand to it. But the point is, is that that's illogical. It's illogical to punish the right hand or the left hand for the actions against the other side, because if it's all part of one, of one whole. If we treat others as part of ourselves, we won't have any revenge. And by the way, what's kindness? We can really trace this to every mead, to every characteristic. Kindness. Judging favorably. Why do we, ju- why do we need to judge favorably? We judge ourselves favorably. Why do we judge others non, un, unfavorably? Because they're not us. But if they are us, we'll judge them favorably. Quite simple. Uh, you're sharing the burden. We're told with the importance of sharing the burden with other people. So what is, what's the first, first story with Moshe? Moshe goes and sees the pain of others. He feels pain. What does he do? He tries to help them. Was that just guilt? No. Does he feels pain and wants to alleviate pain? Like anyone wants to alleviate pain. We feel pain. We try to alleviate our pain. I see someone else's pain. Doesn't bother me because it's someone else's pain. But if it's my pain... So I made a list here of, of, of meters that I, that just initially, just without even thinking about this, that really connect to this idea of including others within ourselves. Rabbi Hiva tells us that loving your fellows yourself, that's a core principle of Torah. It's a core principle of Torah. What it's saying is that at its essence, it has everything. And I think that the, 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 the truth really lies in, in this idea, in this model. To love someone as yourself it means to include them in your expanded self. That really is everything because that will bring you humility. Initially, you won't notice that. Like, what does humility have to do with having, including other people in yourself? But it made sense. Humility, kindness, to be a great leader, to, to love other people, of course, to share the burden with other people, to judge favorably. But also God. If you include others in your world, how do you do that? You have to resist your Yetzirah. You resist your Yetzirah who says, no, it's just you. Don't look at other people. If you resist and uproot your Yetzirah, automatically you have faith. Because the only reason why you didn't have faith was because of the Yetzirah. So it brings you not only to interpersonal greatness, 
by loving others as yourself, it brings you to greatness and faith between man and God. It brings you everything. So I think humility is a huge cog of this. You know, humility is part of this grand, grand vision of transformation of man from a Yetzirah dominated this world perspective, material and physical is the only thing that matters, to Alamaba, to the soul, to God, to other people as well. My grandfather used to give this example. He says, when, if you have a man who's, or someone who's in a room, and in a sealed room with no windows, all they have is themselves. But if you open a window, one window, one window in the room, the man could see other people. He could see the grass and the flowers and the trees, pedestrians and cars, the clouds and the skies above, everything, the birds flying. Breaking a window in your heart allows other people in your world and allows God in your world as well. The internal transformation that it takes to achieve any one of these kindness, humility, faith, all that has a ripple effect in every other area of your life. Thus, we could say that a gateway to all of Torah is loving your fellows yourself. Alternatively, the root of every mitzvah is faith. They're both true. Because both of them demand uprooting the internal network that we have within us that distorts reality, makes us ignore other people, and forget about God. I want to go through a few, a few practical steps of how someone can try to change this um, this model of, of Yetzirah-centric mindset to humility. There's a, there's a letter that the Ramban, Nachmanides, writes. It's a letter addressed to his son. It's a very short letter, very short letter. But essentially it's an entire book. <laughs> it's an entire book condensed into a letter. That's what it is. He writes a letter to his son and... The letter is an entire book of character perfection with like a scale with almost all books on character perfection and ethical refinement. They have like a like a ladder. You take this step to that step to that step. And he, he bases it all on humility. So a lot of what we're saying comes from him. But he gives them a very interesting uh, insight. He says, speak your words gently. Always speak gently. Don't raise your voice. That's a tremendously powerful tool because it treats others with respect. It treats others as equals. And someone, second someone raises their voice, it's a sign of superiority. It's trying to, you know, to try, to try to overcome someone else with, and I'm going to raise my voice and now you'll have to listen to me. And it's, it's effective. It is effective. That's why people do it. But if you speak gently, every, all your words with, gent- with gently, that's, uh, what he says is, is a way to, it's a way to achieve. So I think it's a nice, it's a very practical tip for us. Like, yeah, that the, we we could speak gently, uh, but it, you'll realize that we, you know, when when things aren't going precisely smoothly, you feel an urge to kind of escalate your tone. And if you learn to rein that in, you'll force yourself to have a modicum of, of humility. Now. I think uh, a subcategory of this would be to treat others as equals. So it's hard for us in positions of authority, whatever positions of authority that we have, to treat others with respect and as equals. Now, um, I think another area of this would be to someone's accomplishments. So we feel very prideful. We could feel prideful with our accomplishments, but I think there's a way of twisting it to be proud and to be happy and to take pleasure in your accomplishments without it turning into pride and superiority over others. In fact, the Talmud tells us that there's only three areas where lying is permitted. You're allowed to lie. In fact, one of them is your accomplishments. Someone says, how much Torah do you study? You say, I, I studied a little bit. Or you don't say, well, I did this book and that book and, and I finished this and I finished that. No, it's okay. You know, you don't need to lord your superiority of other people in your accomplishments. And to acknowledge your weakness. Many times Rashi tells us, I don't know what this means. And it's a very powerful lesson. He's teaching us something by saying, Rashi, how does Rashi not know what something means? And by the way, I guarantee you, Rashi could have concocted some theory as to what it means. I guarantee you. But Rashi's teaching us a lesson as well. I don't know what this means. Does he not know what it means? Do I know more because I can figure it out? No, probably not. He's trying to be humble. 
and and there's a lesson to say. I have to get used to it's, it's, a, it's appropriate for someone to say, I don't know, I don't know. That's a very good answer. The Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos, in the beginning, a person should get used to saying, I don't know. You should make it regular to say, I don't know. It's okay. That, that's a very, very good response. Not only that, we're told, who is the wise man? He who learns from everyone. Why would someone who's wise learn? learn doesn't make sense to learn from the people that are wise. Who is the wise? Who learns, doesn't make sense to learn from the people that are skilled, people that are successful, people that are gifted. Those are the people you should learn from, not the people, not from everyone. What do you mean? Most of the people have nothing to teach me. So what does it mean when someone who says, "I want to learn from everyone"? First of all, what does that acknowledge? Everyone can teach me something, and everyone has something that I can learn from them. That's a tremendous acknowledgement to say. Every person in the world, there's something that I can learn from them. If I acknowledge that everyone has something to teach me, and I try to learn from them, well, then they're all teachers. If they're all teachers, how can I be prideful over my own teachers? Maybe connecting those two, of, of not flaunting your accomplishments on one hand, but also trying to learn from everyone else. Taking advice from people that are less capable is a very powerful idea. Usually, if you want advice, you want advice from someone that's more successful, has more experience, what about to go to someone who has less success and less experience and less gifted and to ask them for advice? So if you look at Rashi, one of the most difficult verses in the Torah is the verse in the beginning of Genesis where God says, let us make man. So it causes theological problems for us because who's us, right? It's, it's only God. Rashi has an interesting idea. When God says, let us make man, God consulted the angels. And there, and why would God need the advice of the angels, right? God's much more, but the lesson for us is that if God can consult angels, we can consult other people. Because you know why? The delta between God and angels is more vast than the delta between the most capable and the least capable human. But it says, actually, the core lesson is that we should approach other people deliberately people that are less capable and ask them for advice. You know why? Because when we do that, it's it's hard for us, but it's it's transformational for our humility. Let's give a few more bits of advice of how to actually achieve this. It's human nature for us to associate others by their actions, but ourselves by our intentions. If we have good intentions, well, that justifies even bad behavior. Well, we intended good. Not only that, we give ourselves allowances to say, well, I was in a bad mood. Or, well, I didn't get enough sleep last night. That's why I behaved as such. If we're told to love others as ourselves, what it means is to just give the same allowances that we have to to ourselves to give that to others. You judge others by the same measuring sticks that you judge yourself or you wish to be judged you judge others by their efforts, not their results, by their intentions and not their actions. You respect them, even those that have holes in their behavior, you'll, you'll be less prideful. There's a story about a Hasidic Rebbe who said like this. He says, when I die, they're going to ask me questions. They're going to say, why don't you study Torah? I'll say, I was busy. I was, uh, my mind wasn't so capable. I didn't have the sharp intellect. He said, well, why don't you help other people? And I'll say, well, I had so many other things going on. I had my own affairs to deal with. I, I didn't have the time. I didn't have the patience. I didn't have the means. Why don't you give more, more charity? Well, I was poor. You know, why don't you run to do mitzvahs? Well, I was tired. I'll have an excuse for everything. But then they'll say, why were you so prideful? And then I'll have no answers. Pride is a stamp of finality. Pride is when I'm going to say, I have it. I've got it. To be prideful only makes sense if you view this world as being the only world, the permanent world. You ignore other worlds. It's only made, it's only made sense if you view this world not as one of preparation of action. And it also only made sense if you ignore God from the picture. 
Thus, we could say that to achieve humility, we have to first achieve faith. Because those two go, go, they're connected. Humility and faith are one and the same. If someone says they have faith, yet they're prideful, then their faith isn't real. Because if it was real, how could they have any pride? They're a creation, not a creator. But also we see how humility extends to so many other areas. If you're really humble, you'll have love of others, you'll have care of others, you'll suffer with others, you'll have the qualities of leadership, and certainly you'll have kindness. You'll have it all. So indeed, we could say humility is maybe a hard thing to work on. It, it's, it's a little bit hard for us to separate feeling good about our accomplishments versus feeling prideful and feel, feeling superior over others. It's a little bit of a fine line uh, to try to uh, tread, but we see that this is really an entire life, an entire world of opportunity for us in achieving our greatness.